If you'll open with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be in verses 1 and 2 this evening. About a thousand miles off the northeast coast of Australia lies a chain of about 80 islands or so called Vanuatu. It was first discovered around the year 1600 and then later explored a little bit more in the 1770s. But in the year 1839, two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary Society, stepped ashore in hopes of being the first ones to share the hope of Christ. Within moments, beaten to death, cooked and eaten by a cannibalistic tribe. A couple other teams arrive over the next decades have a little bit better success. They last a few months before they're chased back to their boats. But then in 1858, John Patton, a missionary from Scotland, arrived, only to lose his wife and his newborn child to a fever within the first few months. He served alone for the next four years under the constant threat of danger. How do you endure that? Two ways among many that I would highlight for you. First, he looked to his earthly father. Recalling to mind the image of his father after every meal, his dad would go into a prayer closet and pray. And and Patton writes this in his autobiography. He says, though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory, blotted from my understanding my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with a victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? Second, he looked to his Lord. He he wrote these words reflecting back on the death of his wife and child. He said, feeling immovably assured that my God and father was too wise and loving to err in anything he does or permits. I look up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. So Patton endured in the midst of unimaginable suffering and hardship by looking to the faith of his father and the sovereignty of his Lord, his dad and his Lord motivated him to endure. Our lives are a little bit different than Patton's. None of us escape the hardship, the frustration, the suffering of living in a broken world. We're living by faith, waiting for that eternal home with Christ. But are are you ever just weary? Is your soul ever just tired? Perhaps your faith is tied from the the constant news cycle, the reminder that we do live in a fallen world. Perhaps you're waiting, desperate to see God work in some way, and you're praying and hoping, but you're just still waiting. Perhaps you're weary from that sin you just can't get beyond, or that sin that just keeps getting imposed upon you. Are you weary? How could you endure anymore? By God's grace, this is where Hebrews chapter 12 meets us. Hebrews was written to a weary 
and a desperate people, tempted to turn back from their faith in Christ alone. So the author cries out to them saying, Christ is better. Christ is worth it. Hold fast to Christ. Endure. But how? Where can we look for motivation when even our very endurance is gone? Let's begin by reading here from Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2 together. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, here in Hebrews 12, we get an athletic metaphor, and the Bible's filled with all sorts of metaphors for the Christian life, and among the most frequent is athletics. We get wrestling at times, we get training boxing even to some extent. And here we get racing. And so we're told that we, when we enter the Christian life, we're entering a race. And not just any race, but a long ultra marathon type of race. So while it probably would have been a better sales pitch to call it a, an easy walk, you know, a cool walk in the park on a nice day, uh, but no, for the purpose of encouraging us, he's honest with us. This is going to take sweat-inducing faith. You're going to need faith that works through that side stitch. You're going to need faith that pushes beyond the muscle cramps, the mental fatigue that tells you just slow down, take it easy. See, the main emphasis of our text tonight, it falls right in line with that great burden of the book of Hebrews. Run the race of faith with endurance. The race is hard, but don't give up. You'll be tempted to turn back, but keep running toward Christ. Endure. He motivates our endurance when we're weary, when we're drained, by telling us to look to three places. And so first, he encourages us to look to the testimony of the saints. He begins with, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. See, at the end of of chapter 10, he's encouraging them not to lose heart. Verse 35, he says, don't throw away your confidence. And he ended ended by reminding them, we're not the type of people who quit the race. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then in order to encourage them, we get chapter 11, because as any good preacher might, he foresees the question that's coming to mind. Okay, what is faith? He tells us it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, which sounds nice, looks good hanging on the wall, but the obvious question is, what about real life? What does that actually look like? to which we get this long list of those who were commended for their faith in the midst of their race. 
He brings back to the front of their minds Abel and, and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab and Samson and David and countless other unnamed people for whom the world was not worthy. He says we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, so let us run with endurance. But before we get into this cloud and considering that, did you notice he says it was the race set before us? Because there's, there's so much motivating grace in just that little phrase that's easy to miss because we're runners on a course that was prepared for us, a course that was prescribed for us. Now the, the challenge is we didn't design it. We don't know how long the race is going to be. And we don't know where it's going. And so you're in the midst of a challenge, anxious, afraid what's coming next. How big is the next hill? Is there another hill? The, the wonder, the beauty of this set before us, we don't know the course, but we know the designer. Psalm 139, he saw all the days that were before us when yet none of them were. Romans eight twenty nine, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. From beginning to end, he's got it planned. And in Ephesians, he tells us that all of this happened in love. So even though we don't know the route, the length of the course, we can endure because we know it's our sovereign loving father who set the race course ahead of us. And so we can be assured that it will come to his desired finish line. And as we run this race, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. These witnesses, they're not here to look upon us, but that we might look upon them He's referring back again to all of, all of chapter 11, this great list. Every named, every unnamed person commended for their faith in God. Those who ran their race with endurance were surrounded by them. And, and not just a, a great number of them, so great a number of them. Such that he calls it a cloud. It's, we're in the midst of them, just cramped in by all of these people. And so while it'd be easy to keep thinking this athletic metaphor and it might make sense in your mind to, to imagine a, a stadium filled with spectators watching us run, but in the New Testament, witnesses are, are not a passive experience. They're not passive participants, but active ones. They're speaking, they're proclaiming, they're telling us something. And the emphasis here, them being a, a cloud is the unity of their witness, they speak with one voice proclaiming the faithfulness of God. And so he's giving us permission to grab our Bibles, to, to read the stories in them that they might inspire our own endurance. So read them. Learn about God's work in and through his people. He's struggling to obey when it seems like everybody else is headed in the other direction. Check out Noah. Struggling to, to patiently trust God's timing or has, are you fearful that he's forgotten his promises to you? Read Abraham. You think God's abandoned you? 
Check out Joseph. Gideon, he led an army of 300 against thousands, and then he's, he refuses to be made king, but then he builds an idol and leads all the people astray. You got David in there, you got Rahab in there. You think your sin is too great? Read their stories. Because these men and women cry out that God is faithful, and so their endurance can be fuel for our own. More than these people, though, we have the entirety of church history, men like John Patton, women like that, stories we can read, but we have one another. This is one of the reasons Hebrews tells us to stir one another up, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Because I need need the story about how God brought you through a, a challenge in your marriage. I need you to call and tell me about the struggles of parenting and the way God ultimately saved your kid because it calms the fears I have for my own children. You need the story from over there about God's provision when it seemed like all was lost. You need the story from that side of the room about peace in the midst of fear and and grief and the way God's presence was real in those moments. We need each other's stories. I love the way one one pastor describes this. He says, Hebrews 11 is nothing less than a proof from practical experience that men and women of all times, in various lands, in all positions, exalted and humble, in the most varied situations, in war and peace, have been able to stand the test and prove the reality that living faith is the power of God. This, however, means at the same time that what others have been able to do, you also can do. Your God is not only a God of yesterday, but the very God of today. So you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and we can surround each other with an even tighter, bigger crowd cloud of witnesses crying out in unison that God is faithful and the race is is possible so we can endure. The struggle is the race isn't just possible though, right? It's dangerous. We're chased by this siren call of sin behind us, chasing us down, slowing us down, taking us off course, draining our endurance. And so he calls us not just to look at the the testimony of the saints to motivate our running, but to look at the ever-present threat of sin. Look again at at verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And the imagery that this would have called to mind in those first years was the picture of an athlete preparing for a race by removing his, his robe Yes. You know, you can think of a long, heavy robe, the common garment of the day, because you don't win races with long, heavy robes on you. And so aerodynamics, mass are the concerns, not modesty here. And runners run to win the prize, and so anything excess, anything that would hinder them, it's got to go. You know, and I, I love this running metaphor that's happening here because I'm one of those strange people that enjoys running just for the sake of running. 
when I run, there's no headphones, no music, no podcasts, hopefully nobody else, and it's just me, just the quiet sounds of the neighborhood and my feet moving onward. And I've got a little watch to, to track my runs, because if you know me, I, I kind of like to get a little bit nerdy with the data after I run, but I don't look at it while I'm running, because it just distracts me. It just kind of gets in the way of running. But if I go somewhere and I, I have to take a car key with me, or I have to carry my phone, I'm constantly checking my pocket to make sure my car key didn't fall out of my pocket while I'm running. And if I'm carrying that phone, I can't relax my hand because I'm worried about dropping it and breaking it. And I hate those silly little armbands that are either too tight or falling the entire time. And, you know, earlier this year, I injured my knee. So then when I got back to running, I'm thinking, you know, is it hurting? Is it okay that it hurts? Am I going too fast? Am I going too far? Wait, is that my knee that hurts? Is it something else? This ruins it. (laughs) All these excess weights, these burdens slowing me down, ruining my fun. Whatever threatens running well has got to go. Because even the seemingly good and innocent things. See, back, to, back in chapter 10, we're told that they laid aside good things, an honorable reputation, physical safety, their personal property, because rather than keeping those things, they chose to keep Christ. They chose that better, abiding possession. So it's a good thing that I hold on to my car key while I'm running, but it impedes my running. Music might help you, but it distracts me. So we should be asking ourselves, are there, are there good things? Are there biblically permissible things in my life that are impeding my race, distracting my intention, preventing me from running with endurance? But his emphasis here is not primarily on these good things. It's primarily on sin, the sin that clings so closely. And and notice he doesn't name any particular sin. Quite often in the Bible, we get lists of sin. And here he just says sin because he's concerned not with specifics, but with all of it. What does it mean that sin clings so closely? I think it's that, that insidious nature of sin, how it it draws us in, and then it doesn't let us go. Sin, through our own our own temptation, it entices us. It we get entangled in with it, and then we're just trapped. We find ourselves entrapped by it. James, chapter one says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. One of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Brooks, he describes the nature of sin's allurement. Listen to how he describes this. Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, and to hide from the soul the wrath and the misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. Think back to, to Eve in the garden. The tree looked good for food. It was a delight 
to her eyes. Seems harmless. Not going to hurt anybody. Kind of gets me what I want. Gets me what I need. Nobody's going to know I'm doing this. It'll feel good. I deserve to feel good. You ever told yourself those sorts of lies? How often instead of shedding sin, we're just joyfully grabbing hold of it. And as sin entices, it seeks to entangle itself with us because suddenly you find yourself filled with, with guilt. What's wrong with me? And you're filled with shame. I have to hide this. If anybody knew I did this, it'd be over. I'd be looked down upon. And you're filled with with fear. I, I can't come back from this. I'll never be able to, to break this sin. If anybody finds out, I'd lose everything. He's like a, a serpent around its prey. Sin is just wrapping tighter and tighter around your soul until that entanglement just becomes entrapment. At that point, you've moved beyond fear, beyond guilt, beyond shame. You're to the point of just sheer blindness. Everybody around you sees the sin, but for some reason you don't anymore. You know, think back on that, that cloud of witnesses. Think back on David for a moment. He's laying on his roof, relaxing. He sent off his army without him. He looks down and he sees something that entices him. He has to have her. He deserves to have her. But then he's caught. He's in trouble. He's got to sin some more to cover up that sin. And then you have Nathan step in and David is so entrapped by his sin that right and wrong is just totally warped in David's mind in that moment. You know, sin does this to us. It can sear our conscience against certain sins where they don't even impact us anymore. You know, perhaps for you, your heart turns a different way. It just paralyzes you with despair as you think about your sin. Change is impossible. No use in trying. It's just, just who I am. You know, sin entraps us. It, it perverts the truth. Sure, I sin, but nobody's perfect. I mean, do, you, do you see how lightly that takes sin? It justifies it. It blame shifts. You know, a self-righteous heart is proud of its godliness. You know, Brooks describes that as painting your sin with the color of virtue. How does any of this encourage our endurance? Because as we look and as we consider the threat of sin, we see the danger in part in slowing down and giving up and carrying this stuff with us any longer. Anything that slows you down, anything that distracts you, trips up your stride, anything that drains your endurance, get rid of it. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. It's that verse that led John Owen to that great mortification of the flesh work. Be killing sin or sin be killing you. That's why David eventually in Psalm 51 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Later in Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Thoroughly 
any grievous way. Get rid of all of it, Lord, that we might run with endurance toward the prize of Christ. So running the race with endurance means we get rid of everything that gets in the way. But we know even that won't be enough. Getting rid of those weights, those sins that cling so closely, they they might keep you from collapsing in exhaustion on your race. Looking to the, the witnesses, they're great. We know they're far from perfect. Back in chapter 11, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. A few verses later, he says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What was this? something better than the promises that they had been given. Why weren't they made perfect apart from us? It's because together, Old Testament saints and us are looking toward that one thing, that one better thing, the only thing that will sustain our endurance all the way to the finish is Jesus. That's why he says here in 12 verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that third motivation, that ultimate motivation to endure is to look upon Jesus on the tree of shame. And that encouragement, look to Jesus, might be more fully understood or even better understood as look away to Jesus. Look constantly to Jesus. Your translation might even say, fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, we're told of Moses that he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He fixed his gaze on the the promised one to come and left behind these lesser treasures. Didn't fear the dangers around him. And so with even Moses, we're motivated to run our race with endurance by looking to the founder, to the perfecter of our faith. You might recall back in, Many weeks back in our series on Hebrew in chapter two, Jesus was called the founder of our salvation even there. He was made perfect through his sufferings. And here, putting founder and perfecter together, the idea is origin and completion, beginning and end. And the writer, he's picking up on this notion from back in chapter six, Jesus being a a forerunner. And so he presents Jesus before us, the first to run with endurance, the race set before us, and the only one who endured with obedience all the way to the end. And so we see in Jesus, for the first time, true faith from beginning to end. He showed us perfect faith and thereby enabled us to follow his example. Notice he says Jesus, not Christ. Because the author is wanting us to focus 
our heart on his humanity, not on his deity. Remember, he was given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. His very name reminds us of his identification with us. And so at the cross, we see Jesus identifying with us, running the race with endurance as the perfect example of faith. Because even on the cross, there was not a moment when the Son did not fully trust the Father. So there's no better fuel for our race than looking to Christ. And he endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, and perhaps you're familiar with the, the pain and suffering of crucifixion, beaten, mocked, scorned, nails through his flesh, hung on a tree, struggling with thirst, muscles aching, gasping for breath. You know, but our emphasis here in Hebrews 12 is on the shame of the cross, not the physical torment. Is the final sentence cast upon a victim of a, a crucifixion was a judgment of shame. There's no chance to regain your honor, no chance to vindicate yourself. The humiliation and shame of crucifixion, it was deliberately designed to be seen by everyone. Martin Hengel, excellent book on crucifixion, says this. It says the negative attitude toward crucifixion was universal in antiquity. Even though it was widespread, widespread use throughout the world by many different people. And it was primarily a political, a military punishment and afflicted upon those who were seen as traitors, as those who were rebellious. Hengel notes that for the men of the ancient world, the cross was not just a matter of indifference, just any kind of death. It was an utterly offensive affair, obscene in the original sense of the word. So crucifixion, it was offensive to all the senses, both physical and moral. It was designed to subject the victim to extreme indignity. They were hung there for all to see as deterrent, a deterrent against similar crimes. When they looked, they saw not just, humil- not just suffering, but humiliation. They saw shame. This wasn't the end of the race that the followers of Christ expected, was it? It was just days before this, waving palm branches, shouts of Hosanna. The finish line is coming. The conquering Messiah, the one who's going to sit on the throne of David, he's here. We're ready to cross that glorious finish line, but now we've got a beaten, a mocked, a humiliated Jesus hung upon the tree of shame. And Satan, he, he means for the cross to be a reason for us to avert our eyes in horror and in our shame of our Savior. But instead, God holds it up before us and he says, look to Jesus for your motivation. Why is that? He endured not simply as an example of faith for us. He endured as our Savior. Hebrews 10 and verse 13 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As the founder, as the perfecter of our faith, he, is, he was made perfect through his suffering, and he is able to perfect for all time those who draw near to him. It says Jesus endured this, which, which might sound passive at first, as though it was thrust upon him, and he did his best, and he got through it. But really, the idea of endure, the full weight of this word, is more like willfully endured. He chose to endure. Jesus chose to endure the cross to perfect us, to save us, to guarantee that we finish our race. Because all those weights, all those sins that we're supposed to cast off, he picked them up. He grabbed hold of them. He chose to take those weights upon himself and rescue us from them. That's the very reason he despised the shame. Because the people who nailed him to the cross, they didn't know the full story. So he didn't care about their opinion. They didn't have all the facts. So their approval in that moment was worthless. It was based on an error. He looked beyond the tree of shame, seeing his true victory on the other side. The shame of the cross didn't get the last word, and so neither does our suffering now. He endured all the way until it was finished. And so when the world makes you weary, look to Jesus. When you're discouraged, look to Jesus. When you're depleted, you've got no idea how you're going to keep putting one foot in front of another. Look to Jesus. Every moment in the struggle of our race, the answer is always look to Jesus. Because the more fixed our gaze is upon the glory of Jesus, the more energized our race is to endure. And you will endure brothers and sisters, because Christ endured all the way for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you set this plan. You chose us in Christ in the founder, in the perfecter of our faith, in the one who would face this shame, you chose us in him. God, that we should be holy and blameless. You did this in love, in love for us, God. What marvelous grace. What an amazing mystery that you would take this wrath that was rightly ours, this punishment that was rightly ours and place it upon him. And so God, we confess that we are weary, that the race is long and the race is hard. And so would you cause us to look to Jesus, to see the one who endured in our place, the one who endured, guaranteeing that we would finish our race until we make it all the way home to that better reward, that better thing to come. 
life with you eternal. Amen.